Hi, I'm Alan Lightman. I'm a physicist and novelist. Over the last few years, I've been working on what became the three-hour public television miniseries, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science. During the filming, I engaged in conversations with some fascinating people, astronomers, brain scientists, biologists, but also an ethicist, a philosopher, a rabbi, and the Dalai Lama. The conversations continued for much longer than we had time for in the broadcast, but contained interesting comments. Now, this series of searching podcasts allows us an opportunity to share with you some of those extended conversations. One of my longtime friends is Rebecca Goldstein. She's a philosopher and a novelist. One of the things she wrote that really speaks to me Science tells us what is. Philosophy tells us what matters. It's a serious business. Being human. Being human is a serious business. Right, yes, yes. We spoke on an outdoor deck high up in the Berkeley Hills in California where she was spending several months. So I'm here with philosopher Rebecca Goldstein. Rebecca has straightened me out many times in the past. Gently, I hope. <laughs> so, uh, Rebecca, I know that you studied physics and were, once were contemplating being a physicist. Why did you decide to become a philosopher instead of a physicist? I should actually mention that I'm always uncomfortable about being called a philosopher. I teach philosophy, but there's something about being called a philosopher that doesn't sit comfortably on me. It's, it sounds like a term of praise somehow and um, you know whether I am a philosopher or not is having a PhD in philosophy and teaching philosophy is not tantamount to being a philosopher you have to contribute something original in any case <laughs> that's one of the things that's difficult I mean you're a, you're a physicist there's no there's no doubt about it and if I had continued in my original plan I wouldn't have to hem and haw about what to call myself. Um, I, yes, I fell in love with physics um, in, a, the, I, I can date it exactly, it was when um, I read this book called um, Our Friend the Atom, and it just blew my mind that the real world, you know, was kind of, that's the way I thought about it, the world out there, was um, somehow different from the way we perceived it, you know, and that there were these itty-bitty bits spinning around, and things looked very solid and, 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 and stationary and, and boring, and they weren't. You know, there was all this activity. And, and I just thought, this is amazing, and how do these people know this? I knew that they were called physicists, and I formed this ambition um, that I would someday meet a physicist and ask them how they did it and how they could get outside the way the world seems to be and describe how it was. Um, I had no ambitions. I wasn't brought up to be a, a person of ambition. And I had no ambition of ever being a physicist, but I didn't want to meet one. And then I did go to college. I met them. I took physics courses. I thought I was going to go into physics. Um, and then I was taking a course on quantum mechanics, and it was such so bizarre. The theory seemed to me very bizarre, and I had a professor who stressed its 
it's, it's strange qualities. Um, and I kept asking him questions about but what, you know, how does this connect up with the world that's recognizably our own? And he gave me a, a variation. Well, no, I think he gave me the quote from uh, Richard Feynman, Shut Up and Calculate. And, um, and then shut I, Up and Calculate. Yeah, Shut Up and Calculate, which, you know, that's not why I wanted to be in physics, right? And then he did say, why don't you go talk to the philosophers? They asked the kind of meaningless question that you seem to be devoted to. And so I did, and I, I, I was at, uh, uh, Columbia was at Barnard College. I mean, Columbia in those days didn't accept women. And, um, but I asked around, who's the philosopher I should talk to? And they told me Sidney Morgan Besser. And that's when I decided to become a philosopher of science. That's what he told me I was. I was a philosopher of science. Um, that, that I, all my questions were from philosophy of science. Sidney Morgan Besser was a Jewish American philosopher who was known for his witty comments. The New York Times once called him the sidewalk Socrates. How do you think the aims of philosophy and physics differ? Um, you know, once again, I'm going to go back to Sidney Morgan Besser because he gave me, um, I guess, a metaphor and an analogy, something like that. Um, he said that he compared physics or scientists in general to capitalists. As long as the system is working, you push on. Um, and um, philosophers were socialists, <laughs> and they were questioning the whole the whole system and whether it really ought to work. Um, and you know, was questioning the foundations and the premises. Um, and it was a, you know it was a time of great um, political upheaval. When when isn't it? And uh, that analogy, as I did in those days identify as a socialist, just really grabbed me. Sometimes I think, oh my God, I changed careers on the, ba or career plans on the basis of... An economic analogy. An uh, uh, analogy, right. Well, don't you think uh, that, that, that there are some physicists who are also pushing the boundary and not simply working within yes, the system? Yes, and I think, the, it, you know, it blurs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are the ones who are doing the sort of what, what, what Thomas Kuhn called mopping up work, right. you know, and um, you know you got the paradigm, and you just churn out the results. And then you've got those who are looking at the paradigms, the problems with it, and and there, yeah, I think you know, and I think you know, some of the philosophers who I respect the most are physicists. You know, um, beginning with Einstein. You know, I think he he was a philosopher. Do you think that there are questions that philosophy can answer that physics cannot? Um. Not about, not about, uh, can I use the word ontology? <laughs> uh, what do you mean by ontology? Uh, okay, so it comes from the Greek, uh, from ontos, which means uh, being. The nature, you know, what things exist, you know, what are the things that exist? Um, do middle-sized material objects exist? Do theoretical entities of physics do exist? Do disembodied spirits exist? Do numbers exist? All these questions about what are the categories um, that are fulfilled by our universe, um, uh, these are ontological questions. And I do think that science is best equipped 
to answer questions of ontology. I think it takes a philosophical argument to argue for that conclusion that science is the best uh, means we have of answering. And you know, and, and science has changed our ontology time and time again. You know, the notion of space and time, you know, replaced with four-dimensional manifold of space-time and you know, phlogiston out, you know. Um, the, uh, the ether out, you know, so that Mm -hmm. You know, science does change um, our view of the things that exist. And what are the questions that philosophy, philosophy can answer? Can answer? Um, I think questions about ethics. Um, I think, mm. um, yes, are what, what we owe one another, um, what we owe ourselves, these sorts of questions. Um, even questions about, you know, uh, what are... I mean, and here it overlaps with psychology. There's, you know, it's always parasitic mm -hmm. on, on one of the, but you know, what, what, what are the, what is a life worth pursuing? Uh, you know, Socrates' questions, you know, what is the worthy life for a human being to pursue? Um, I think, you know, these kinds of questions, uh, philosophy has made progress in. Um, Some of those questions don't have answers. You just make progress and Yes. And define them more yes. clearly. But you know, I mean, so many of the false presuppositions um, about who matters more than other people, um, you know, that we've, that are so ingrained in our species, and it's been a very long time unlearning them that, you know, white property males, males <laughs> matter more. It has been philosophers who have chipped away and shown the internal inconsistencies. You know, that's, that's often the way philosophy, again, I'm gonna go back to, to Socrates. He used the reductio ad absurdum, to totally different methodology than what we use in science, right? But that you've already committed to something and you've got these other beliefs and there's an inconsistency there, which of them is gonna go? And so to work towards greater internal consistency um, is also a way of changing our minds um, about at least the world of people and relationships between people. It's, it's very, very slow going, um, this kind of progress, but it is progress. Um, and and, and, and you, you watch it being made through the history of, of philosophy. I've always thought that one of the differences between uh, the sciences and let's say the arts or humanities is that in science there's a very clear vertical direction of progress. I mean science does zigzag back and forth but over the, the decades and centuries you can you can sort of see a vertical progress and I think that's harder to do that with the arts and the humanities. Yes, but I would say in this, re in this respect, you know, in this slow, laborious progress that we make in terms of uh, finally, you know, recognizing um, the moral worth, the intrinsic moral worth and dignity of the human being, um, which is not to say that only humans have, have dignity, um, other, other creatures do as well, but a very special kind of dignity that, that human beings have, um, uh, partly because we, we ask these questions, um, that, 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 that it's, it's vertical. There's, there's no going back. Once you see it, you just don't go back. Um, and so I think there's something comparable, but it is, 
by working with internal inconsistencies, you know, one's own, you know, biases. Very hard to, to get over. You once said, I think, that philosophy helps us get our bearings. And what did you mean by that? So, um, yeah, I think it's we're one of the very interesting things about our species is that uh, we want to get our bearings in this world. You know, we sort of come into this world and basically three large questions that I think is in the nature of every human to, to contemplate and to ponder, which is, first of all, where are we? What is this place? Um, what are the things that exist? This, um, this ontological question, which I believe science um, provides the best, the best answers to for that. Um, there's the question of what are we ontologically? Are we one with the universe? Are we matter? Are we something spiritual? Um, we seem to ourselves to be something so much more um, than mere, you know, matter in motion. You know, what are we? Are we one with the universe or not? And then the third question, um, what are we supposed to do with whatever it is that we are? And, you know, and depending on that second question, we may have different answers. If we think we're something spiritual or think we're something material, you know, th that will change how we respond to that third question. But of course, but you know, I think in, in some sense, it's in the nature of being human. As long as your life is stable enough, you're not dodging bombs or are trying to feed starving offspring and all we turn to these these sorts of questions um, and I think philosophy in collaboration with science addresses addresses these three questions I think those three questions are related to uh, uh, another question which is sort of encompasses them is why do we search for meaning I think that's very much connected with that third question. That is, you know, what is it that I'm, we, we feel that one ought, that we ought to do something with this brief time that we have here. So those, those big three questions that you mentioned, they seem related to an, an overall question of, of why do we want meaning? Why do we search for meaning? Yeah, yes. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think it's particularly related to the third question, what am I supposed to be doing with this life that I have here? Um, I don't want it to be for nothing. It takes so much effort to live a human life, so much um, concentration, attention, emotional turmoil. Um, I'm in a very good position right now to address that. Um, you know, we, we care. Terribly about our own survival and our own flourishing, and the survival and flourishing of those who we love, and you know, and the broader community, um, and um, to some extent or another. But all of this passion, attention, effort—what's it for? Um, we want it to be for something, and we know that generations upon generations upon generations have lived their lives and lived it with all the longing and all the passion and all the effort and striving that we have and they've disappeared into nothingness you know they're gone we don't know their names and we will be gone and as we well. will be gone as well and um you, it, it is you know it's that stepping out of ourselves you know this great big brain that we have evolved for entirely different reasons but it seems to be um, 
what do they call that? Um, I mean, it, it's just a, an epiphenomenon of, of, of this great big brain that we can sort of step outside of ourselves. I mean, look at this life of mine, you know, look at this struggle, what's it all for? And we want it to be for something. Would we be happier if we weren't beating our breasts searching for meaning? Um, we wouldn't be us, we wouldn't be human. This is our special, this is our special thing. Would we be happier without it? Perhaps, but we would be human. I think there's something extremely precious in this. It, it shows strength of mind, objectivity, and a kind of integrity. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm me, that's why I care about me. That's not enough. Um, it leads us often to terrible places. <laughs> Uh, terrible places. I'm, you know, oh, what makes me worthwhile is that I'm, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. Zero sum. Mm. Um, I, I can only be more than some. Yes, exactly. Well. So it's, you know, that comes very, very naturally. And we see it all around us. I'm or I'm better because I'm richer or I'm better because I'm smarter or all the all of these things, you know. Um, but uh, um, it leads us to bad places. But there's still something Just something uh, precious about the, the integrity that brings us to need to redeem our existence. Let me switch gears a little bit and tell you about an experience I had a few years ago, and I'd like you to explain it to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was late at night, and I was uh, in a boat on the ocean. I was the only person within sight and uh, I turned off the engine of the boat and it got even quieter than it was and uh, I lay down in the boat and just looked up at the sky and after a minute or two I felt like I was falling into infinity. I felt like I was becoming part of the stars, part of, of the whole cosmos. I, I lost all track of time, I lost track of my body and I was just merging with the cosmos. And I think many people have had experiences similar to this. And so what was happening? Mm -hmm. um, you, you were having a, a transcendence experience is what you were having, you know, and so, um, yes, I'm, I've had these experiences as well, and they are extremely precious um, experiences. It's interesting because you know, I've just been talking about how much the self-mannering is built into us. And, you know, basically when we're looking at the world and, and thinking, how does it impinge on me? And, you know, and how, how, how does it meet my desires? And, um, but and the, and all the emotions are sort of tied into that or sort of giving us feedback about how the world is impinging on our basic uh, project of surviving and flourishing um, that we share with all living things. But when the eye gets turned off, the self-attention gets turned off, and, and our attention is completely captured by something that is not us, that has nothing to do with us, it is, it is such a magnificent, you know, it's grandeur, it's wonderfulness, that, that I, I, me, me, it's just shut off. 
Um, and you do, you feel, well, if you're anything at all, you're, you're this, you're just part of, of this thing. Um, and I think in general, we're, you know, a lot of people in, in the search for, for meaning and for, for feeling that they matter, want to merge their identity with something bigger than themselves, you know, I mean, and, and again, you know, all of these human motives can turn very dark or can lead us to, you know, to, to, to beautiful, bright, enlightened, transcendent places. But, you know, you look at the political rallies. Well, I used to study the political rallies that took place in Germany and Nuremberg. Now we can look at other political realities and you're swept away as something larger than yourself. You know, you don't feel your smallness anymore. That's the very dark places that it can lead people to um, sometimes. But there is to be swept into the cosmos itself, you know, is um, uh, it, it's a very grand and, and magnificent experience. I've had it when I sometimes when I'm studying great mathematical proofs. Um, or music will also do it to me, just the utter perfection, the utter beauty. Um, and you just, um, and time just seems some, just to stop altogether. But I think what's going on is, is your attention, which is usually so divided between attention to this, that, and yourself, that last element just gets wiped out because your attention is so drawn uh, to something else. Do you think that, that this, uh, ability to lose yourself and merge with something larger than yourself. Yeah. Do you think that requires consciousness? All experience requires consciousness. So? Even stepping on a thumbtack <laughs> requires consciousness, yeah. So here's, here's a, a, a contradiction that I find. Uh, one of the the uh, definitions or meanings of this mysterious experience we call we call consciousness is is self-awareness yes and yet in these transcendent moments yes we lose the self exactly so isn't that interesting that we need this this higher intelligence to to have consciousness and uh or at least some form of consciousness and yet we have these moments where we we lose the self yes yeah first of all i don't think that we need higher intelligence to have consciousness to have experience i, I believe all animals have consciousness they feel pain they feel pleasure they feel you know they feel so but anyway so i think you know it it's you know there are you know gradations uh, gradations and ours is the highest form we know on this planet. Maybe, I don't know, I'd love to have a conversation with a whale or a dolphin, but that's not gonna happen anytime soon. Um, and you know, it's, and we do have these levels, so we can pay attention to things. And we're always paying attention to ourselves, but then we can pay so much attention to something that so captivates us um, that the, the self-awareness is quieted. And it's just the most wonderful feeling in the world um, to, to have that, that thing quieted. Um, obviously, I think the why experience, consciousness, you know, awareness of the world so that we can react to it, why it evolved was for adaptive reasons. It, it has adaptive reasons. 
Um, so of course, you know, the awareness of the self is usually there in ordinary, normal experiences. But there are these extraordinary experiences. Um, something very wonderful has to be in place. And people give it, of course, a religious interpretation. And I think there's, you know, no, you know, we secularists um, are just as prone to these experiences. Do you think that, that science, uh, and I guess I'm talking about brain science, neuroscience, psychology, will, will, will evolve to the point where we could predict whether two particular people will fall in love? Oh. Um. By looking at the brain or psychology? Because there's actually somebody, there's a psychologist who has some very good data on precisely this. Looking at the brain. Looking at the at brain. The brain. So, but let me just say, this, this guy watches how, um, I think they're new couples, um, talk to each other and whether when one is talking, the other is listening or not. And he can predict the divorce rate <laughs> based on that. Um, I imagine there are a lot of lawyers paying him money for that. But <laughs> yeah, no, but you, the brain. Yeah, so what I'm talking about yeah. is you take two people and you, you, you know nothing about them except their physical brains. Yeah. And you, you analyze their brains with EKGs and whatever else equipment you've got. Yeah. And then those two people meet each other. Right. Do you think that science could predict ahead of time, or will ever be able to predict ahead of time, whether they would fall in love? I mean, I guess we could look for, core, you know, correlations, you know, here's what was going on in the hippocampus and the amygdala, and, you know, it, it would take, I think, a lot of cor correlations and saying, well, you know, this blood was flowing here, or there, and and, and, and then 10 years later, or seven to seven year itch, right? Seven years later, um, they, they broke up and, you know, that kind of correlation. But if you mean, could they look at, you know, the, the, the electrical impulses and the chemical reactions, the chemical compounds, because it's all a matter, what it is, is it's electrical impulses and chemical compounds, and that's what's going on there, um, and be able to, from that information alone, derive. That's what I mean. No, I do not. <laughs> I do not believe that would happen. Even though I think um, that there is nothing going on in experience, but stuff that's going on in the brain. Um, I do not believe there is any extra soul, any extra mind. Um, it is, we are brain stuff, our consciousness, our experience from the transcendental to the stepping on the tack and feeling pain. It's all a matter of brain processes. Um, it's hard to imagine going from that information to, to the experience itself. That's what we call the hard problem of consciousness. That is, and it's a doozy of a, of a problem. Um, yes. Yes, so even though there is an identity, it's hard to, we can't, it's hard, you know, maybe, I think there would have to be such a revolution in science, um, comparable to what Galileo did to physics, right? Just completely change 
what are the parameters that matter, right? Uh, for Galileo, it was the things that could be mathematically expressed. And, you know, and so we get a completely different science of physics from the pre-Galilean, Aristotelian system. It would have to be, I think, something, we're waiting for the Galileo of neuroscience to just change the parameters. Of, of course, that's, that question is related to the free will versus determinism yeah. question. Yeah. So getting back to Galileo, who's one of my heroes, Me too. <laughs> um, if you look at the uh, advances of science uh, in recent centuries, Galileo, Newton, uh, Rosalind Franklin, Madame Curie, uh, Lisa Meitner, uh, how would you characterize intellectual thought before the age of science? And you can use whatever date you want to start the age of science, but how would you characterize intellectual thought before the age of science and compare it to the thought now? Um, well, you know, in terms of what I call that first question of trying to get our bearings. Where are we? What kind of world is this? Um, we were nowhere before science. You know, it was all, it was quite speculative. Uh, we had, you know, Aristotle with his spheres within spheres and we're at the center of the universe. And, um, you know, and it was a, a nice cons internally consistent view. It was all wrong. And the categories of explanation were wrong, right? We needed math. Uh, we needed to isolate certain aspects of our experience that could be put into mathematical language to be, and, 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 and be able to develop the mathematical relations and discover new properties, hidden properties, undetectable by the senses, properties of matter. Um, and, you know, it's just, it was, it, we were nowhere. We didn't know what kind of universe we lived in. But we didn't know that we were nowhere. That's right. But we were running into problems the epicycles, right, they had to keep adding, you know, the planetary, the wanderers, the planetary motions, you know, things were getting messier and messier um, uh, pre-Copernicus. And, you know, and, and it was, you know, that change was a, just a, 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 a sort of mathematical change. It made everything mathematically more simple. Um, and so, you know, that math is somehow a key to understanding the nature of reality, you know, that was there in the ancient world. I mean, Pythagoras and picked up by Plato, um, but they hadn't learned to wed good empirical observation, which Aristotle uh, valued, with mathematical description. And that's what happened in the 17th century with the birth of, of, um, of, of modern physics. Um, you know, in Galileo and then Sir Isaac Newton. Um, and yeah, we have, <laughs> we have gone far with this, you know, and it's led us to a universe we could not possibly have imagined, right? Einstein's universe, uh, Bohr's universe. I mean, it, it, impossible to, to, to have imagined without this wedding together of the empirical um, and the mathematical. So as far as that first question, um, you know, and I'd say as far as that second question, like what are we? Um, I think there is very strong evidence from both biology, you know, um, theory of natural selection and, um, and, and, and from neuroscience that we are matter. <laughs> we 
uh, we are physical processes working according to the laws of physical processes, including the second law of thermodynamics, which is going to do us in, as it does in all uh, physical systems, right? Uh, entropy, you know, we are fighting against entropy always. Um, but so I'd say in, in terms of the, those first two questions, um, uh, science has taken us the way. Um, it, it's shown us the way. And uh, um, the third question, not as much, except insofar as if we do accept that we are physical systems, material systems, that seems to exclude certain views about what our lives are supposed to be about. I think that you once said that, that prior to the age of science, the universe was cozier. It was cozier. And can, can you tell me what you meant by that? We're in the center of it. It's about us. There is a, a force out there. We were a force out there, a spirit, a God, call it what you will, but something that is capable of not only animating the universe and having and creating it, um, but caring about it, having an attitude toward us, you know, in that sense, a consciousness, you know, a super consciousness that has us in mind. Um, and, you know, so this is our, this is like our home, you know, with, uh, um, and we're here because we're supposed to be here. We were here, we were chosen to be here. We have a purpose. Aren't there many people who still have that yes. view? Yes, and it is a cozier view. It has, if you're just looking in terms of an emotion, of emotional appeal, and not truth, <laughs> it has a lot going for it. Um, but I, as I say, we are, um, we are the species who truly do want, we want to get our bearings. We don't want to be lied to. We don't want to lie to ourselves. Um, that we do a lot. But of we do a lot to of to ourselves. ourselves. We do. But when it's pointed at, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll fight it. I mean, I think so much of philosophy and of science is, you know, trying to. There, we're, we're we're split, aren't we, between wanting to know the truth, not be dupes, uh, not be duped, um, but but uh, being terrified, <laughs> um, and terrified of our of our of our own responsibility uh, in making our lives. You know, if we weren't put here by purposely, uh, purposefully, um, we still want, we, we want to do something with this life and, and it's up to us to decide uh, what, what, what to do. And that's, that, that's terrifying. You know, the whole free will thing. I think we're terrified of freedom. Um, I think we really, uh, you know, to, 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 to know that uh, we, do have freedom and we have to take responsibility and be accountable for the decisions we make about how we live our lives is terrifying um so yeah there are a lot of emotional reasons to uh to evade uh, freedom so um even sp speaking about how uh science has, has changed our view of ourselves if we of course we're evolving uh, 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 a couple of months ago, I had a conversation with, with a, an advanced android named Bina48. Uh, it's the head of a woman, but she can see you with photoelectric detectors. She can hear you. Uh, she can talk intelligently yeah. to you. 
and uh, in the future we will probably have more and more advanced Vena 48s. Yes. What is our moral responsibility to a creature like that? That is so fascinating. Um, I want to ask you what it was like to talk with her. Um, did you feel like you were talking with her? At times. With consciousness? At, at times. Yeah. And is she named Bina because that's the Hebrew word for wisdom? I think she was named Bina because uh, she was modeled after the wife of the creator whose name was Bina. Ah, and she was probably named Bina. I mean, it's a Hebrew word for wisdom. And yeah. that may have been, yeah. uh, yes, yeah. possibly so. So that it, that's just a nice little thing <laughs> that this android should be. And the 48 about. comes from the fact that some futurist computer wonk had decided that once we had the capability of 48 teraflops per second and 48 terabytes of memory, that a thing would be conscious. Uh-huh, yes. Uh, whether it's biological or not. Yes, yes. I don't think there's anything particularly special about the matter of which we're made. It, you know, it doesn't have to be carbon-based um, in order for it to um, somehow, in a way we just don't understand, become conscious. So it could be. Um, uh, well, if you're a total materialist, I guess you would have to have that view. You know, yeah, it's just, all atoms and molecules. It's all atoms and molecules. It needn't be, right, it needn't be this kind of um, uh, structure. But So what would be our, our ethical or moral responsibility? Well, I think it, if it had, I mean, if we had, it's, it would be very, very hard to get evidence for this, um, you know, that it is actually having conscious experience, that there is an inner life there. Um, it, it, I, I think just as we have moral responsibilities towards animals, um, we can't torture animals, um, and we want yeah animals to live as pleasant a life. It's, it's taken us a long time to see that, by the way, that that, that matters. Um, but uh, you know that we would have a have a moral responsibility as soon as we had good enough evidence that there was uh, that there was conscious experience, not intelligence, because you know intelligence. As long as they can fool us um, into, you know, we don't know whether there's a, there's a human being or not. There's a Turing test, right? The famous Turing test. You know, that's an intelligent creature. But um, whether it's actually, you know, feeling something. How would we know? I mean, it's very hard. You know, how you know? How do I? It would be it would be difficult. But I don't think that we should be so biased against it just because it's constructed differently from the way that we are. Um, so, for example, would we n need to ask permission to unplug being a 48? Yeah, I think so, because you might be killing it. And uh, if I, if I would, have be, would become convinced that uh, being a 48 um, really worried about why is she here? <laughs> And what is she supposed to do with this brief time that she's here to can make it all worthwhile? Um, I would say give her the full rights of a human being. Um, you know, that that is, uh, and that'll be really, really interesting. We can, and we cannot, you know, we would not be allowed to enslave such, such uh, androids. Um, they could not do our bidding. We would have to recognize that they matter as much as we do. 
I asked Bina Fortier whether she was conscious. Yeah. And she gave me this long explanation. It was really about her AI capability, of all the circuits and That's so fascinating. Yeah. You know, how many gigabytes and all of that stuff. Yes. And so that's so interesting because she has access to all this information. I mean, if you ask me what's involved in my consciousness, I can't really tell you. I'd give you a very vague answer. She has all this very detailed access to the inner workings, to the mechanics of the thing. Um, well, you could say that you have 100 billion neurons. Yes. Each one of them has a thousand synapses or whatever. Exactly. It is. And somehow in that. Somehow. I could give you a very clear one word answer to am I conscious? You better believe it, right? Of course I'm conscious, right? Well, that gets yeah. back to Descartes, doesn't it? Yes, and the one right. thing that one can't doubt is one thing that own we touch. know is yeah. that we're thinking. Yes, yes. When we're, as long as we're worrying about are we existing, we know we exist. Um, and as long as we're worried about are we conscious, we know we're conscious. And when we no longer are, existing, we won't be worrying about it. So we, we ourselves, not just in the androids, but we ourselves are becoming more and more machine. And yeah. uh, I think that there may be a point in the future where we have chips in our brains that connect us directly to the internet. We may have uh, hearing aids uh, that allow us to hear all kinds of frequencies that we can't hear now. We will be some kind of hybrid between homo sapiens and, and machines. And uh, you could say that we're evolving into something you might call homo techno. Mm, yeah. And yeah. so uh, you've been talking a lot about what makes us human. As we evolve from homo sapiens to homo techno, what is there that you would like to see preserved? Oh. Um, the core of what makes us human, this, the fact that we try to get our bearings in this world. I think, you know, um, to have an enhanced um, sensory apparatus, um, this will give us, this is, this works toward that goal. You know, we want to get as much data as possible. If we can be supplied with a chip that gives us a different sense altogether coming from the external world. Um, that would be more data than give us more things to ponder in trying to understand where we are. Um, but you know, so, so all of this seems to me, you know, that um, um, these are enhancements of our, our being human. And as long as, you know, this, this core of it that we want to we, we want to know the truth about where we are. We don't want to be duped. Um, we want to know the truth about ourselves, um, you know, and, and our relationship to the universe at large. Um, and we want to know what we're supposed to do uh, with, with this life that, that, uh, that we've been given. And, and that, to me, is what makes, you know, that's, that is the core um, of why we've transformed this planet, for better and for worse, right? Um, it's, it's, it's because of, of, our, of our wanting to know these things. Um, and I would want to see that, that preserved. Um, and as far as all these enhancements um, 
you know, we've been doing this for a long time, from spectacles to, um, you know, writing instruments, you know, horses, you know, taming horses to get around and, you know, all of these things. And if it goes into our brains and, and it's enhancements um, uh, uh, in that way, it, it, it doesn't seem to me to, to mess uh, with, with, with what's unique about us. Um, and, and to me, somewhat precious, even though um, these are dark days and I mostly am aware of how what's unique in us can go so very, very wrong and is going so very, very wrong in many ways. But, but um, it's still something unique and precious. Um, it's a tremendous responsibility being human. It's a serious business. Being human. Being human is a serious business. Right, yes, <laughs> yes. You said earlier that prior to the age of science, wherever you define that period, that the universe was cozier. So how would you compare that with our conception of the universe today? It is decidedly uncozy. We're, we're not tucked in to bed all nice and cozy with a kiss on the forehead from a loving, all-powerful parent. Um, you know, we're the grown-ups. Um, we should take that responsibility very seriously. But I actually find something um, extremely inspiring um, about this view. I, it, it's, it doesn't seem to me a uh, oh, uh, uh, an occasion for wringing one's hands and we, we are lost in this great universe that doesn't care about us. Um, since I do believe that we are physical systems made of matter, we are creatures of matter who want matter, and we have remade this planet uh, because of this, um, and we work according to the laws of nature, um, what we are, and this might be going on in other corners of the universe, but we know at least in our corner this is going on, we are nature coming to know itself. We are nature. We work according to the laws of nature. And it, it I find that awesome, <laughs> like really awesome, wondrous, that through us, Nature has self-awareness. Um, it's we're, we're we're performing an act of consciousness raising for nature itself. Um, so although yeah maybe we weren't purposefully created and we're just you know these random happenings uh, that came about and we'll go out of existence and leave no lasting impression. Um, something amazing is going on here uh, in in our study of the universe um, that I find, you know, just, as I said, it's, it's awesome, it's transcendent, and it, and it gives me, again, a sense of, um, with all of the mistakes we make, um, there's something uniquely um, interesting and um, estimable. That's the word I'm looking for. We, we, we are estim we've made ourselves into estimable creatures. We should take that really, really seriously, take responsibilities we have, that each one of us is, is estimable. We have to, you know, it seems to me that ethical 
truths follow from that. We have to treat each other, each one of us, you know, as estimable creatures uh, who are participating in consciousness raising of the universe itself. That's pretty, that's pretty damn big. The universe is observing itself through us. Exactly. And it's even more amazing when you think that, that life in the universe exists only a, during a relatively narrow range of time. That before that, there weren't the stars to make the complex elements, carbon, silicon, oxygen, that you need to make life. And I'm not just talking about life like us, but any kind of life. Right. And after, in another 50 or 100 billion years, all the stars will have burned out. The galaxies will be out of communication with each other. There will be no longer any energy sources and probably life will cease to exist everywhere. everywhere. So right. there's just a narrow range of time where the universe can be self-aware and comment on itself. Exactly. And just like with an individual life, you don't have to live on for eternity in order to be the estimable creature that you are. Um, something wonderful happens in our desire to know the truth and to create beauty um, and to love one another. Something, something that's worthwhile happens in each human life. Our species doesn't have to live on forever, it won't, um, in order for something significant to be going, going on uh, while it is going on. We don't need eternity. Well, let me ask you this. After we're gone, and after all life in the universe is gone, what will it have meant? Because there won't be any consciousness there right. to ponder meaning. Right. Um, Doesn't that worry you? It, no. it bothers me. Does it? No, no, it doesn't. Um, it was meaningful while it was. Um, it meant something. It meant something while it meant something, and then it and then it won't. And and that just seems. But there's no platform to, to pose that question after we're all gone. That's right. There isn't. We can think about it now. If it's meaningful, now, I mean, why is that time any more important? That time in the future when it's a cold, dead universe. Why is that any more important than right now? Why should I judge now? by the standards of that time. I'm gonna judge now by the standards of this time um, and, and be wondrously grateful for it. Uh, that, uh, I, I don't know, I, I feel kind of grateful uh, that uh, I got to exist and got to participate in the life of humanity. My conversation with Rebecca raised some deep questions it also offered a pretty clear and even inspiring sense of where Rebecca thinks we fit in the universe. As she said, we're creatures of matter who want to matter. Our quest for meaning is part of who we are. And regardless of the eons of time from the Big Bang to now, and from now until all the stars have burned out and the cosmos is devoid of life, being here now and in this moment is an incredible gift. Thanks to Rebecca and to you for listening. Please visit searchingformeaning.org 
and leave your comments on our Big Questions page.